Faculty Podcast brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I am president and professor of Old Testament here, and I'm joined by my friends and colleagues, Dr. Grace Sutanto, Dr. Peter Lee, and we're thrilled to have uh, for this episode uh, Jennifer Patterson, director of our Institute of Theology and Public Life, sitting in with us. You all have heard her before uh, in this space, but it's great to have her here because we have a special guest today, uh, and that guest is Pastor Christopher Six. He is a graduate of Reformed Theological Seminary here in Washington, D.C. He's from the class of 2010. So you just slightly predate my arrival here, but let me see. Dr. Lee, you were here, and Dr. Keene, you were teaching here, right? When Chris was here. First year. First year, okay. Did you ever have Dr. Keene? I did not. You did not? Okay. Well, you can come back. You know, you can always come back and audit classes. I think I should. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, and, and here, let, so thank you. Welcome. Thanks for being here in this episode. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, Chris is a pastor at One Voice Fellowship, a church plant that he planted about three years ago. So in the middle of pandemic, we'll come back around and talk about that. But he's been in ministry for a long time. He was uh, uh, basically in charge of mercy ministry at Alexandria Prez for about 20 years, mm-hmm. right? That's right. And it was during that time you wrote your book, Tangible. Uh, and so we want to talk about that too, uh, talking about how actually we can impact and show mercy and the love of Christ in the communities in which we live and how to do that effectively. Um, but we're here to talk about you and the ministry that God's called you to because it really is a unique and interesting work that you're doing here in the D.C. area. But before we get there, I actually want to start with um, just a little bit of your conversion story and not just how you came to the Lord, but also you know, how did you discern a call to ministry and how clear was that call you know, vis-a-vis what you're actually doing now? Mm. This is a question a lot of our listeners have. As I'm discerning my call, you know, can my call change? Does it have to be fully understood early on? But right, but right. How, how did you move from coming to the Lord to coming to ministry? Yeah, so short uh, version would be raised Catholic, got to college, University of Buffalo, stopped going to church, started going to fraternity parties, um, decided that I didn't believe in God. I think I knew enough that it my uh, uh, my attraction to women and beer was incompatible with uh-huh. a relationship with God. And I thought agnostic was intellectually dishonest. So I decided I was an atheist. Okay. Um, so spent 10 years as an atheist. Um, but um, the Lord was kind and persistent in giving me Christian friends and the way I saw how they loved each other, um, their integrity. Uh, I was really drawn to them. But Ultimately, I read a science fiction novel written by a Mormon, and uh, in that novel, I saw my sin in a way I might not have seen it well, otherwise. What was the novel? Uh, it's called Memory of Earth by Orson Scott Card. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Ender's Game is his best-known book, yep, but yep, um, yep, yep. and I, I don't I don't think anybody else will come to faith by reading that particular novel. But for me, I saw that pride and lust were the true gods that my heart were interesting uh, attracted to, and I saw it in these two characters and got on my knees by the Potomac River in the middle of the night and said, all right, Jesus, I'm yours. So you were living in D.C. at the time? I was. Okay. Wow. That's awesome. So how you're 20? 28 years old. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So did you right away after having that realization of Christ and his lordship and saviorship of you, did you instantly say, well, now I need to dedicate the whole of my life 
to ministry? I didn't. I was, um, that same month I became a believer, I went from being a restaurant manager to an editor at the Washington Times and uh, spent three years there in journalism and uh, began to look at the rest of my career and think, I don't think I want to just mm-hmm. do politics and things. I, I, I'm, I'm seeing that there are eternal matters that weigh more than the daily news cycle of Washington, D.C., and these crises come and go. Um, But there are these deeper crises, these spiritual crises that people at my church are wrestling with, and I think I want to do something related to that. Yeah, that's awesome. So that takes about three years, and then what happens next? How do you you start? start, Once you have that realization, how do you move towards ministry? Do you sign up at RTS, or... What do you start doing? The funny thing was, since I was an editor at the paper, I got a um, got an appointment with Frank Wolf, a co- uh, believing mm-hmm. congressman. Right. And uh, so I sit down with him, and he says, "What are we talking about? Are you doing a story?" And I said, "No, actually, I just I want to know how I can help people more." And he's like, "What? <laughs> how did this guy get in here?" But so he put me in touch with some people who were doing some work in Southeast DC, um, and uh, I ended up running a. Uh, scholarship mentoring program for inner city youth, worked at a homeless shelter. Is that the um, little white house? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And uh, so worked there for a while. And then Alexandria Prez, where I was a deacon, uh, asked if I wanted to come on staff as a full-time deacon to coordinate our mercy ministry. So um, started doing that in 2001, right after 9-11. Wow. Wow. Okay. That's fascinating. So you stayed on as a deacon, when did you discern the call to pastoral ministry? Started seminary here in 2004, and a lot of it was driven by questions people were asking. For example, uh, there was a single mom living in her Ford Explorer with her two kids. Um, she was holding down a job, getting her kids to school every day, but they'd yeah. been living in the car for about a year. And she said, you know, my parents were good people, and then they died in a car accident. She said, I pray every day for God to help me. Why doesn't God answer my prayers? Mm. And I thought, okay, I, I know how to help her with gift cards for groceries. And I know how to help her do a budget. I know how to do a lot of these practical material things that right. she needs. Right. But she's asking a theological question, and I don't know how to answer it. <laughs> and I need to know what God's word says, because I don't want to give her my opinion. Uh-huh. I want to know what God's word says. And so... I came here, started coming to RTS. Wow. Okay. And so that's around 2004, a few years after you, you take on the diaconate work. That's right. Okay. I mean, that's, I'm sorry. I mean, working out the timeline is helpful because I think for a lot of people, they're, they're not sure what is this supposed to look like as I'm discerning my calls. it come overnight? Is it like my conversion? You know, is this something where I dip my toe in the water, I start doing ministry, and then I start realizing I want to do this full time? So just kind of tracking along with that with that kind of development into the work that you're doing now is super helpful for me. And I know it is for others as well. One of the things that's really great about your work is mercy ministry is of course, very Mm hands-on practice is the essence of it. Mm -hmm. And yet you've been able to also take a step back and explain the theory behind it, as Mm -hmm. we say, the the thought process, the fundamental uh, principles that you take into that. And you've expressed those in a couple of different forms. Tangible, the book you've written is one of those. Um, you shared with us a letter that you wrote to your fellow deacons as you moved from working in mercy ministry to the church plant that you're now a part of. Um, 
I wonder if we could take just a few minutes to think and reflect with you on some of the principles that you found so important to Mercy Ministry. I I really want to focus on this uh, because at the Institute for Theology and Public Life that we have here at RTS Washington, the question of wholeness and flourishing, what constitutes flourishing, Mm. human flourishing, is really basic Mm -hmm. to all the questions of how we do life together in society and how the church understands that uh, is fundamental. So you've really worked in a space that's important to us as we reflect on how we, uh, a- how we act as Christians in our lives together in society. So that's a big open question. Sure. You've thought mm-hmm. in profound ways about it, but I wonder if you could just begin to walk us through what's at the core of wholeness and flourishing after your several decades in mercy ministry. Mm-hmm. You know, in, uh, I interact with a lot of social workers and caseworkers working with asylum seekers and refugees and others, and um, they used to call it um, holistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, now they talk about wraparound services. And so if, if you're in social work, uh, your job is to care about the whole person. And so they care about people's uh, material, mental, medical, uh, you know, financial, psychological, and a good one will also recognize that people have spiritual needs. And so they want to address all of those. And I think um, the church hasn't consistently done a good job of recognizing all those needs. And I think there is no better institution on the planet than the local church to address the holistic or wraparound services that an individual needs. Um, It is in the local body of Christ. It is in the the, the regular means of grace and participation in the body that people can have um, their needs best met. Um, of course, you know, the church can't perform surgery and we can't prescribe psychiatric medications, but in the, in the body of believers, you find um, sympathy, you find the, the help, you find prayer, you find spiritual direction, discipline, and a people people who care and can connect you with those other resources. Yeah, yeah you have relationships. Yeah. Um, I think, great. yeah, go ahead. That's great. And I, I've also been, a, your, your work attunes us to the fact that we, we have to be conscious of ourselves mm. as well. Even as we think about serving, we also need to think about our own needs. <laughs> Can you, can you speak to a little bit of that and, and some of the encouragement that you've given to uh, deacons in their work in that regard? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think we can't offer to anyone anything we haven't received. Um, mm-hmm. Just in Sunday school this past week, we were looking at the Good Samaritan story. And um, every time we come to that story, we automatically place ourselves in, in the Good Samaritan role. And we think, okay, that's who I am in the story. Yeah. And Jesus is asking me to be like that guy. But that's premature. <laughs> um, first, we have to see ourselves as the man in the road. You're the helpless victim. You're the one um, who is lying there. And Jesus is the one who comes and out of sheer grace um, helps you and provides for your needs to, to a radical extent. And then he says, now, go do, and like, go do likewise. Do what I have done for you. But we jump quickly to be, oh, I want to be David um, fighting Goliath. You're not yeah. David. You're, you're the scared people in the audience yeah. watching Jesus go into battle against Satan on your behalf. You're the one who gets saved from slavery. Um, you're not the hero. Jesus is always the hero. 
Um, and I think when we grasp that deeply, that we have received radical mercy and amazing grace, then maybe we have something to offer to others. That's really helpful. Now, the Alexandria Presbyterian Church Ministries included quite a bit of work with refugees. Mm-hmm. And that seems to have really been one of the sources of the current church plant that you're a part of. Can you explain that trajectory to us and what was learned from those years in working particularly with refugees? Yeah, as we um, had the opportunity to get to know more asylum seekers, people um, fleeing political, religious persecution, um, it impacted the church in profound ways because you see the way that someone's personal faith can cause them to persevere and trust in the Lord, um, even in the most um, horrific of circumstances. Um, but it also challenged us to realize that our way of worship, our way of doing things was not the only normative way. Um, <clears throat> one brother from Congo, he said, uh, when I'm singing in church, if my body's not moving, <laughs> it doesn't feel like worship. Mm-hmm. And uh, there aren't not not a lot of PCA churches necessarily encourage dancing in the aisles. Um, it happens in the OP all the time. Oh, good! <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. I didn't know. Um, but what I realized was that our brother was laying down a valid worship preference on the threshold of the church every Sunday when he walked in. Yeah. He had to leave that behind because his culturally uh, preference, cultural preference for worship, was not really being welcomed. And um, I thought how unfair it is that someone who is new to our country, who is always feeling like the outsider when they go into the school or the doctor's office or the store or the post office, they're always the outsider. They're always having to accommodate themselves to uh, the situation they're in. And why is the church not more willing to um, do the accommodation, to make the change, to make the move? Um, and, and we often will do it, you know, like when we found out members of our church weren't taking communion because they were gluten intolerant. Mm-hmm. I mean, 20 years ago, I guess most of us didn't know about that. But as soon as we discovered that five people at Alexandria Perez couldn't take the bread, we offered gluten-free bread. It was a pretty easy fix to move in their direction. Um, so one of the reasons we started One Voice Fellowship was to say, what if we were to worship in a style and pray in the languages um, of our immigrant uh, brothers and sisters. And so we translate the sermon into 15 languages every week Mm. and we sing and pray in different languages. And we ask first, you know, as long as it's um, biblically appropriate form of worship, um, how do you do it in Togo? How do you do it in Korea? How do you worship in Pakistan? I would love to see the way you lead a prayer meeting in Pakistan um, because it may be different. It often is, um, but it enriches me and it makes the body of Christ um, more fully represented when we do that. You've got to have that, that, that awareness, as you said, that kind of empathy with the experience it's kind of going back to what you were saying about the, you know, the Good Samaritan, right? We have to remember that we're the, we're the beat-up person on the side of the road who is in need of help before we go out and provide the help. I remember a counselor one time telling me, you know, he, he said, somebody was asking him, how do, you, how do you counsel all these people with all these different you know, terrible situations and experiences? And, and he made that point, too. He said, you can't, 
you really can't counsel someone unless you've gone to the places that you're willing to take them. Now, that doesn't mean that you've experienced specifically everything they've dealt with, but you've been reflective and thoughtful enough in your life having dealt with the issues that have arisen that you can now walk with them as they find that place. I mean, I think in, in terms of what we're talking about, doing missions to some degree can be really helpful in this regard because it can show you what it's like to be the person who comes in from the outside. If you've never had that experience, you know, acutely, you then have it acutely and you can come back because you have to have a sense of empathy, right? You have to be able to ask somebody, has to, has to occur to you, are you able to take the Lord's Supper? Or what's happening, you know, what, what does your worship look like and what are you giving up to worship with us? You know, that's a, it's a beautiful question for pastors and congregations to ask themselves. Can I ask a really technical follow-up? Because I yeah, bet it's sure. going to occur to our listeners. How do you do that translation into 15 languages? No. Yeah. And, and how did you pick the 15? Right. Well, we 12 of them are languages of people that, that are in worship most every week. And then we have a few that are aspirational. Like there's a lot of Vietnamese in our neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So we're, we have Vietnamese ready if someone shows up, but they haven't yet. Um, I have to finish my sermon on Wednesday every week, which is a challenge. And then we upload the manuscript to a software platform um, called Spiffio, S-P-F dot I-O is the URL. It's um, a software uh, system that was developed um, by um, an Indonesian Christian software guy. And uh, they do an initial machine translation of it that's about 90% accurate it's much better than Google Translate Mm -hmm. and then we have human editors who are bilingual believers um, around the world and we pay them to go through the manuscript so there's people in Venezuela and Pakistan and China and Uganda and Turkey um, every week who are going through and editing for theological and linguistic accuracy Amazing. Um, and then as I preach I read one sentence at a time and then they're able to follow along and basically read live subtitles in the language of their choice. Wow. So, how, so, how, so this is, a, is this a Christian ministry then? Mm. They have, so they do the theological analysis for you or, or precision? No, all of those editors are people that we found. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. so the software platform is oh, owned got by it, believers, got it, got it, got but it. they, okay. you know, it's been used by NATO for meetings. Okay. It's, uh, but they're really hoping more churches will That's fast. take it on. It's a, it's yeah. a really amazing uh, piece of technology that wasn't available, you know, four or five years ago. So the things we're able to do today yeah. um, are That's incredible. So in other words, you really do have to preach with notes. Yes, yes. And yes. I have to stick to them pretty closely, uh, which is hard. I, I, it's not my preference. Yeah. But, you know, when I look out, you know, we have one woman from Pakistan um, every week uh, who speaks like zero English. She was going to a church walking distance from her home just because she wanted to be in worship. You know, she's a 75-year-old widow. She just wanted to be in church. So she was sitting there understanding nothing. And then mm. someone brought her to our church. And now she sits there and I look at her when I'm preaching and I see her nod and smile at the correct time. Right. So I know she's understanding the Urdu that she's reading, even though she can't understand the English I'm speaking. Yeah. Fabulous. That's amazing. So, you know, people oftentimes say, you know, everybody wants diversity until it actually happens. That's right. It's a source of conflict. And even my own ministry in Jakarta, Indonesia back then, um, you know, there was all this conflict between native Indonesians and Chinese Indonesians and also 
between more Western-minded folks and less Western-minded folks. So how do you navigate some of the conflicts? What are the normal sort of conflicts that come regularly, perhaps in One Voice Fellowship, and how would you navigate through these? How do you help people navigate through these? Mm, that's good. Um, I think the most common thing we have is just misunderstanding with communication. Um, I was trying to help a brother from Pakistan. I was encouraging him to get certified to prepare taxes because he was a CPA in Pakistan. And so I sent him a few websites and I said, this would be a good class for you to take and let me know and the church could help with all that. And I never heard back from him. And so three months later, I was like, why didn't you, you know, did you decide not to do that? And he said, no, I was waiting for you. And I was like, I gave you all the info. And he said, yeah, but I thought you were going to tell me which one to take. I thought you were going to help me register. Like, oh. I'm just used no. to like, here's the info, go do your thing, you know, because Americans are independent and autonomous, but yeah. he's from a culture that's much more interdependent. And so I think our conflict is most often around misunderstandings mm. and miscommunications. Um, and I move too fast and I don't slow down enough for people. And so that's something I'm repenting of regularly is like, I need to slow down. I need to listen. Um, I think others are just what's culturally expected at a wedding or in worship. Um, and we have these different preferences. And so we're trying to talk about them a lot. So we'll often do that in Sunday school is just have a conversation about why do you pray that way? Why do you do things this way? Yeah. It's something you sometimes have to go back for yourself and say, what's the preference, right? What's the preference? What's the conviction? What's the absolute truth, right? The, the, the non-negotiable, right? And being able to distinguish those isn't always easy because a lot of times we blend in our preferences with the more the more important issues. That's well, right. You know, uh, we talked about your church plant way back when you were getting started, and uh, it was always sort of fascinating, and at least at the time in theory, what it was going to look like. And it's great to hear how it's kind of working out. Um, you know, as a fellow church planter myself, uh, you know, one thing you learn real quickly in church planting is, um, you know, you kind of live and die with community formation because if you don't have that, you really, you, other than the preaching of the word, uh, you don't have much to offer to those who are coming by. And if preaching is all we've got, I mean, you've got a variety of different options in the area and other churches that have got really great preachers. So you really need to establish a real strong sense of community life. Um, that's obviously challenging. Uh, you kind of talked a little bit about it, uh, but I was wondering if you could just elaborate a little bit more. Um, they sit in service. They're done. What, what does life look like for uh, One Voice Fellowship after that? Yeah. One thing we're doing to build community is we have dinner every week before worship. Um, so we have Sunday school from 4 to 5 p.m. Then we have dinner from 5 to 6, and then worship is at 6 p.m. And so having dinner every week, um, you know, just throughout Scripture, we see that relationships happen um, over meals. And so we're breaking bread together, and a different team brings food every week. So one week you're having Ethiopian uh, and Congolese food, and the next week it's all Pakistani and Korean, and the next week it's from El Salvador and Puerto Rico. And um, so it's fantastic food, yeah. but um, <laughs> we're just we're building community over meals. And so then you're upstairs worshiping next to somebody um, and maybe you're singing in different languages. We sing the doxology in different languages simultaneously, and it sounds like heaven. Um, but you're singing that with someone that you just broke bread with. Um, and then during the week, we meet in small groups, um, uh, as most churches do. But that mealtime, I think, is the one of the primary ways we build community. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, and we also do testimonies. I'm sorry, I just remembered. Um, once a month, um, we have somebody share their testimony and we give them 15 minutes so they can kind of tell the full story. And because of the software platform we have, they're able to do it in their heart language. So we just had a brother share in, uh, brother from Bolivia. So he could tell his whole story in Spanish and we could all read subtitles in our language. And before that, a sister from Korea told her story in Korean. Um, and so we get to hear each other's life stories. Um, and I think that helps us know and love each other yeah. better. That's mm. amazing. So how are you, is it, is it so far word of mouth in terms of how people are finding their way to the church? Yeah, it's yeah. really only been word of mouth. Um, and I'm really encouraging our congregation to invite people from their people group. You yeah. know, I, I don't know how to reach right. Uyghurs and Pakistanis and yeah, yeah. What, the Congolese. What, and Where do you post the ad? That'd right. be hard to do, right? Exactly. Are there other ministries? I mean, I'm sure as you've, have you, as you've been researching this and preparing for it and then been in this space, are you aware of other kinds of churches in the D.C. area that are trying to do this kind of work? Is there kind of a network of this sort of thing, a multilingual uh, church serving mostly refugees and immigrants? Is that is that a thing that you're seeing more of? There are some networks. There's one called Mosaics, which uh, Mark DeMaz uh, leads. Mm -hmm. And um, most of the churches that are doing multilingual are doing one or two languages. And what I've seen is that what happens most often, and I understand why, so I'm not critiquing it, but yeah. um, they'll, they'll gather for worship together until the sermon. And then, uh, you know, the, the Nepalese congregation will go to one room and the Spanish speaking will go to another and the French to another. Yeah. Um, and we really wanted to have church together, that we do everything together um, and to lower those barriers that divide people. So, um, I have only found a few churches around the world that are doing more than three languages. Mm -hmm. uh, there's one in the Netherlands. There's one in Sydney, Australia. I, I believe there have to be more. So if any yeah. listeners find out about one, please tell yeah. me because yeah, 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 I'd yeah. like to find uh, more of them. Because I'm sure these are the all, all kinds of, there's all kinds of issues that are going to arise that I'm sure you've experienced too. As, as you've even said, you know, have, breaking bread together is a great way for us to join together, have people from different different groups setting up, you know, the meals. But I'm sure there are all sorts of other technical issues that can arise with this kind of multilingual, multi-ethnic, multicultural congregation. And I'm sure just being able to share notes with other people. It's kind of, I mean, church planning is hard enough as it is. And how many networks are there for church planners to get together and talk about the weird issues that, that popped up in this thing that I'm doing, which is church planning. So to, doing church planning in such a creative, innovative way. I'm sure. I, I'm sure a, a network of uh, uh, would be of, of of aid to those who are bumping into issues that your kind of typical church plan isn't running into. Yeah, I'm. I actually am hopeful that we could just start a quarterly Zoom call with people who are doing something similar. So, yeah. again, if anybody wants to get on that, I want to get it started soon. Yeah, yeah. But I think one of the things that makes a difference is simply having a desire and a, seeing it as a value. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Bavink quote, um, he says, not the man alone, nor the man and woman together, but only the whole of humanity is the fully developed image of God. Yeah. So that for me to see that I can't experience the image of God fully, I can't experience what the body of Christ is fully. Um, the temple, 
there's only one temple, um, not, not multiple temples. Uh, English is deficient in not having a plural you um, there in Ephesians. But um, only together are we the complete body of Christ. And yeah. so I'm handicapped if body parts are missing. Right. But when I get to be in relationship with my brothers from the Philippines and El Salvador and China and see how God is at work in their lives and how they see Scripture, um, you know, when you read Scripture through the lens of other cultures, you discover all kinds of things you wouldn't have seen. Um, so do we have an attitude of saying, you are necessary to my spiritual development? Mm -hmm. You're not an inconvenience. Yeah. Um, but you're a necessary blessing. Yeah, you're not, not an auxiliary part of my work in the church. I think Bobby goes on, does it, doesn't he? Uh, first, I was going to ask you, who, who's this author you're citing again? We're not, we're not familiar, <laughs> Have but, you heard of Herman yeah, yeah, Bobby? Yeah, but uh, <laughs> doesn't he go on to say, in the, in the image of God is not f complete until the last human is born kind of idea, you know, which I, I just think even, even that theology alone is going to you know, inoculate you from being able to be ingrown and... Um, in your perspectives on things, because you have to recognize if I want to know God, as you said, you know, I want I want to see the whole of the image of God. That's right. So, Chris, when I when I talk about this idea of the corporate image of God and the importance of um, cultural awareness, diversity, I oftentimes get the pushback. Oh, okay. What if I I'm in an area where it's pretty ethnic specific? Where what if I'm in an area that isn't actually diverse, right? So, for instance, when I was in Medan in Indonesia, most of that area there, specifically in that little town was um, very Chinese Indonesian, for instance. So, so do they, should they feel like they're missing out? Um, should they therefore kind of bring in diversity that isn't otherwise there in their town? Should their church just reflect the demographics of the town? What do you think of this idea of a theology of ethnic-specific churches? Mm, yeah. Um, I don't think, I, I, I want anyone who's part of an ethnic-specific church, especially an immigrant church, to know that I don't think there's anything wrong with it. It's very good to have Korean language churches, Spanish language churches, French-speaking churches. Um, it's hard enough to be new in the country and then to have to um, accommodate yourself uh, to the majority language also on Sunday. So, mm -hmm. um, But to your question about the demographics of your community, I personally think we should feel an urgency that there would be congruency between who we see in the community and who we see in the pews. Like, d does, does the congregation look like who you see at the DMV um, or in the local schools? And if not, why not? And if you are in a mono-ethnic community, there's still other kinds of diversity. Um, I, I looked at the demographic statistics for Alexandria, um, I don't know, probably 10 years ago, and 37% um, of the children in the city of Alexandria were in single-parent homes. The, the children in Alexandria Presbyterian Church are not 37% from single-parent homes, mm -hmm. so why not? Mm -hmm. Why and, and who needs a church family more than a single mom and her kids? Mm -hmm. She desperately needs the body of Christ to come around her. But we also see um, people who have um, family members with special needs, handicapped, are much less likely to be members of a local church. Why? Mm -hmm. Why don't we have the people who are the neediest in our community, in our churches? What are we failing to do to help them feel included and welcomed? Mm -hmm. And then... Do we just, do we feel the wrongness of that and then want to do something about it? Yeah, 
That's great. great. Yeah, I think in adding to that theology, just having a, as you said, a doctrine, a notion of providence. Okay, I look around at the community that's around me. We often think aspirationally about what I would do if I was in some completely different community. But just look around you right now. What What is God calling you to in the community in which you're currently living and serving? And as you said, go to the DMV. It's a great place to go to CVS and go see the kind of people who are there. Yeah, and you've had an opportunity to really observe those aspects of ministry in the life of the church since, uh, you know, for decades. Um, and, and have, you know, ri- you've written on it. You have uh, really given some real thorough a thoroughness of thought in the last 20 years or so since uh as you've been kind of watching this develop in the church i guess i'm curious as a guy who has really looked into this published on it written on it uh what have you seen maybe just at the church at large that you've seen as being encouraging um and what has been maybe areas that you think that we can still really work on i mean when i was in seminary maybe a generation ago, you know, diaconal ministry really wasn't a, a thing that was talked about in, in, in real high-profile positions. Um, it, it now, since then, has become a little, uh, a little more popular and a little bit more within the target of uh, visions of churches. So mm. I think that's been growth there. But, um, but, you know, as someone who's done a lot of work in this, I guess I'm curious on what you've been encouraged by, what you've been discouraged by, where can we improve and things like that. Mm. I think uh, discouraged, I would say, how often we are suspicious of one another in the church when uh, our, the emphasis we have on ministry is different than someone else. Um, you know, Luke 24, Jesus was described by those guys on the road to Emmaus as being mighty in deed and word. That was his reputation. That's what he was known as being mighty in deed and word. And the church isn't always known for being both or one denomination is known for being uh, deed-oriented and the other word-oriented. And how can we be uh, denominations, churches, individuals um, who, who have a balance on both of those things? Um, there's a story I love. Um, Philip Ryken, when he was pastor at uh, 10th Pres in Philadelphia, a team from Covenant College came to do a documentary on 10th Presbyterian. And... Uh, the opening line of the documentary had um, a word in it that he took issue with. And tell me if you can guess which one it is. Uh, The opening line said, 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia is committed to the historic orthodox truths of the Christian faith. However, they also have a robust outreach to the poor and needy. Mm. However. (laughs) Exactly. Mm -hmm. He said, you have to change it. You have to change that word, however. It should say, 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia is committed to the historic orthodox truths of the Christian faith. Therefore, they also have a robust outreach to the poor and needy. But we just instinctively think that those two things are at odds, Mm -hmm. that that it's all about the head or the hands. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the disconnect is in our hearts, is uh, um, we want to think and we want to act. But over, uh, Paul Miller points out in several of his books, just over and over and over, we see Jesus he would see someone and he would feel compassion and then he would act yeah. over and over and over. There's that pattern of head, heart and hands all being engaged. And um, we, we, we each have to grow in some direction of that because we're incomplete on our own. Mm. And of course, when we point ourselves towards action, there are certain kinds of projects 
that we can see the finish line on. I, I enjoyed one of the pieces you've written uh, talking about our temptation to form copy machine committees. Mm-hmm. You know, when we've got a, a deacon uh, board or other body in the church that's supposed to be focused on these kind of mercy ministry uh, sorts of actions, it can often get distracted into the concrete minutia and spend months researching what the replacement copier machine is going to be for the church okay. when they're not focused on all the kinds of things you've been talking about through our conversation here today. Those latter, the the human challenges that surround a congregation are messy, long-term, inconclusive, you can't see the finish line. What is your charge to deacons and other mercy ministry workers in a church to keep them going in that direction rather than these the things we so often find ourselves steered into, the finite projects that are concrete? Mm. That's good. Um, I think we often bite off less than we can chew because we want to succeed in everything we do. And, um, and so we, we, we don't want to tackle messy, difficult things like people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, you know, I said in the beginning that I think God's chosen instrument uh, for transformation of individuals and in society is the local church. And so it is within the body of believers that we do life on life over long periods of time. Um, and it is in that community. So Acts 2, uh, 41, 47 is so profound because you see this group of people who were committed to learning from the apostles, uh, learning from the word, from praying together, fellowshipping together, breaking bread, worship, and in the context of that, they took care of each other's material needs. Um, And then in Acts 4, it says, there were no poor among them. Mm -hmm. Not no poor in Jerusalem. There was no poor among them because when they experienced what it is to actually be brothers and sisters, Um, This diverse group of people, it's these people from all around the region who were in Jerusalem at Pentecost, and suddenly they're brothers and sisters. And as they lived out uh, that, this new family experience, they helped each other as brothers and sisters should. Um, But those relationships, you know, they're messy, they're difficult, they take long time, but that's how God decided, you know, the, the physical body of Christ is now in heaven. He still has a body, but it's not here. But the body he has here is us. And so he says, I'm going to take care of um, you through each other. How have you approached the issue of relational accountability when serving people in your community? In other words, um, extending help and uh, reciprocal expectations with regard to that. Mm. I think building trust um, takes time, Um, especially, again, we a lot of work with people from other cultures, other backgrounds. Um, I remember uh, one woman who uh, we, the deacons were supporting her, you know, significantly each month for rent and utilities and food for her and her three children. She was a widow who'd been persecuted in her home country. Um, But the deacons were having trouble getting her to be transparent about her finances and to open up you know, her, share her pay stubs and her bills and things. And they thought she was being evasive. She was being um, uh, deceitful. Um, and then her therapist helped me understand trauma. <laughs> that if, if you had experienced the things this woman had, if you had been traumatized in the way that she had been, you become very distrusting. 
And when somebody tries to control you and control your money, you're not going to respond well. Um, and so it took years of building trust for her to feel safe um, enough that she would be able to share those things um, without fear. Um, and again, that's what the body of Christ is uniquely equipped to build those kind of trusting relationships here horizontally um, on earth as we are growing vertically in our relationship with the Lord. Hmm. So Church's Mercy Ministry, how do you see it fitting into the organical of a congregation? How, how can the rest of a pastoral team bring about the healthiest deacon ministry? How can the congregation uh, come alongside its deacons? How can it support its deacons? What, what's the kind of wraparound within a church mm-hmm. for mercy ministry? Yeah, I mean, the apostles were so wise in Acts 6 in saying, um, we're going to focus on the ministry of prayer and the word, not because um, serving these widows uh, is less important, but because it's so important that you need to elect seven guys to head this up. Um, and therefore, we're putting an emphasis on both word and deed ministry. Um, and so I think uh, the deacon office has been neglected um, historically in the church, or they've been, um, in some denominations, they're just like junior priests, or uh, they stack chairs. Um, they, the, the, the initial role of what they were called to do has often been ignored. And you know, maybe maybe American rugged individualism works against it in our context, too, is that people don't want to accept help from one another. They don't want to be seen as needy. Um, so we would often share that passage from Acts 2 um, with the congregation and say, this is talking about you in the pews. This is us taking care of each other. Um, and I've often said to the church, I said, if, if you ever buy groceries on credit card, if you ever are struggling to provide warm clothing for your children, if you're ever three months behind on rent, you need to talk to us because that's why the deacons exist. That's why we have a deacons fund. No, there were no poor among them in Acts 4. There should be, nobody should go without their basic needs being met in the body of Christ. And it's the deacons who are on the forefront of making sure that happens. Hmm. How do you correct that uh, diaconal neglect? Because I think that's an interesting point, and we kind of cordon off the deacon. I know a lot of church leases that that cordon off the deacons in their own separate kind of realm. They meet in their own rooms, and and they're not part of the life of the body. Any practical advice for churches? How how do you elevate Mm -hmm. the office of deacon? Um, a few practical thoughts. One, have a monthly deacon's fund offering um, to collect the funds and have a deacon pray for that offering and share, you know, 30, 60 seconds. Hey, these are some of the ways that the deacons have invested your resources. Uh, when we started doing that at Alexandria Press, the giving exploded because people saw that they were helping resettle refugees. They were helping to clothe um, people in need. Um, another um, way is to form elder deacon teams Um, so many churches will have a like groups and each elder has you know 10 or 12 households that they are the shepherd over well why not have it a deacon and an elder Um, and so at alexander pres that's how we did it we had teams of 
uh, elder and deacon and their wives, and they prayed for um, a segment of the congregation. And if somebody goes to the hospital, um, the elder's going to be thinking, I need to be praying for this person and getting people to pray yeah. for their, but the, the deacon is thinking, I wonder if somebody needs to mow the lawn. I wonder if somebody needs to pick up the kids from school. Um, and, and so they're both engaging in ministry, but they're both conscious of maybe different emphases. I, so 15 languages, just from a linguistic standpoint, that's a lot. But you've also got the cultural aspect of that. You've got 15 different unique cultures and problems, problems and tendencies and all those kinds of things. At, to, to what extent are you thinking about that in sermon prep and you know, you know, I need to meet these different kinds of practical needs or pastoral needs, or is it, I'm just going to preach the gospel and see what happens. Mm. You know, how, how much, how much contextualization are you doing in the, in the sermon preparation? Yeah, it's been interesting realizing that um, you can't assume that people know some of the folks you'd refer to, you know, you can't assume that someone knows who Abraham Lincoln is. You can't, you know, quote from a Rocky movie or something and, mm -hmm. and people aren't going to know what you're talking about. Um, and so one effect of that is that when I'm looking for illustrations, I'm most often going back to scripture um, because then it's, it's, it's universally yeah. uh, applicable and understandable. And, um, but also being sensitive to uh, the things that our congregation being 80% immigrants that they're struggling with and they're wrestling with are often different um, than uh, what uh, people in the United States in general are. Um, but they're the basic human needs of relationship, of marital struggle, of concern for your kids, um, of trying to find hope in dark places. Um, but it has been a challenge, and I have to be careful about idioms and uh, how I phrase things. So it's, it's really stretched my sermon prep in good ways. I love the, um, the scripture uh, illustrations drawn from scripture uh, thing that's exactly, by the way, what Ed Clowney used to say in his mm. preaching classes is the best illustrations of Scripture is to draw it from Scripture. So when you mentioned that, I just saw oh, Ed Clowney, my preaching classes, I, I need to remember that and start doing that again as opposed to quoting Rocky movies. <laughs> Can you imagine, by the way, if you had uh, instead of read a Mormon book, that kind of Change your perspective. If you read Tolkien, you would have skipped all those years of, uh, you know, thing and jumped right into ministry or something. Exactly. Something like that, right, Jennifer? That's a right. good shortcut. But I, I, I'll tell you, Chris, what I think I really appreciate it with everything that you have shared here is just how people orientated everything has been, as opposed to, you know, I'm not a big program guy. I think because uh, in in the OP, you know, we don't have large churches, so it's hard to be program driven with small communities. Uh, larger churches sort of have to do that just to manage the masses as as they have, and 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 I think one of the errors that I have kind of sensed within young church planters is to over-programmatize small communities uh, when what they really need to do is just sort of roll up their sleeves, figuratively speaking and literally, and just kind of get down and get dirty and get into people's lives and and um, and just deal with the mess as you put it. I mean, it's not fancy, it's not spectacular, uh, but there is the heart of a pastor. And, and, and something I've been really encouraged by our time here is just to hear how, you know, you are trying to get people to engage with people, and, and that really is just a fantastic thing. Mm, and even the smallest things can help people 
experience God's love. Um, just this Sunday, um, uh, a brother of ours from China just found out he's gluten intolerant. He'd been having stomach aches for years and didn't know why. And he just learned in the last few weeks that he has a gluten intolerance. And so he came up to the table for communion and there was a cup with gluten-free bread. And he said, he told me, when I saw that, I thought, God loves me. Hmm. <laughs> I thought, wow, that's interesting. But it was that God saw him and God provided. Now, how did he do it? He did it through his people. He did it through the church. Yeah. God met him where he was at with his need to have the bread. Um, and, yeah. That's great. Your book, Tangible, Making God Known Through Deeds of Mercy and Words of Truth, has been a help to our students. We've uh, had them read uh, it as a part of our Institute for Theology and Public Life courses, specifically as a part of Effective Compassion. So Effective Compassion is an elective that we periodically offer. Uh, we hope to be offering it in the next few semesters and really highlighting some of the themes that you've spoken about during our conversation here with you. If you could put a definition or just kind of put a, a vision in our minds of what effective compassion looks like for Christians, how would you do that in a couple of minutes? Mm. I think effective compassion, um, if we begin with really seeing the whole person, um, to see what they truly are wrestling with, to see that the um, presenting issue, you know, if someone comes to you and they're behind on their rent by three months, okay, that's, that's, a, that's a practical thing, but why? What has been going on in their world and in their life? What kind of uh, mental, emotional, um, spiritual issues are lying beneath the overdue rent bill? Um, and so effective compassion is going to ask all of those questions. It's going to care enough about the whole person um, to want to not only address the symptoms, but also the underlying causes. Um, and that takes a lot of work. And it's a lot easier to just write a rent check and say, God bless you, good luck. Um, but I think that's what we're called to do. That's really helpful. Hmm. Well, thanks, Chris. This has been excellent. And the midst of just both talking through kind of a bigger vision for what church can look like. We, we you gave a great exegesis on Acts 2. Um, and I think that's super helpful, just tying it all together with our Christian faith and what it means to, uh, as you said, love the Lord our God and to love his image as he has given it to us and as we engage with it through his providence and the communities around us. Thank you so much for being with us. We didn't get a chance to delve into the the actual book, Tangible itself, but I think we got into a lot of the themes mm -hmm. of the book. So um, just so our listeners know, if you, if you want to dig more deeply into what ministry looks like, not only at the diaconate level, but uh, you know the, the, the heart behind the kind of church plant that we're talking about at One Voice Fellowship, you can pick up a copy of Chris's book uh, called Tangible, subtitle, is, I was trying to read it upside down, um, making God known through deeds of mercy and words of truth. This is a great resource. It came out a few years back. I remember going through it back then, and uh, I could see some of your DC, RTS DC training in it as I saw it come mediated through your heart for this kind of ministry. So um, we're thrilled to have you here. Thanks for being with us this week. Thanks very much. Um, to everyone else, uh, it was great to be with you. Look forward to being with you again next week. Until then, take care.